I mean, actually, before the kids leave, I want to show you guys something cool. If we could put up some pictures before you leave, you give me two seconds. So today is a very special day. Today is not only October 9th, but oh, you can put those here. Today is not only October 9th, but today is actually our 17th anniversary in this building, um, which is amazing, yeah? So um, that picture, the first picture is talks of uh, this is before our chairs arrive. You know, we like to do everything on time around here. So even though we opened in October, our chairs didn't arrive until mid-November. So this is actually part of the body, right? We have two churches, Meeting House Carlisle and Skyline View, who donated folding chairs. So that's what was with us in this place 17 years ago. And if you go to the second picture, all right, this is what our, our, our front looked like before this lovely stage. Um, this stage is actually um, part of one of the part. It was Ben Asper's Eagle Scout project to build up this stage. So that's what the sanctuary looks like. Um, just real quick, if you were here 17 years ago, I know it's weird, right? If you were here 17 years ago, could you please stand? I think that's kind of cool. It's hard to believe. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for still being with us. And for the rest of us who were here 17 years ago, welcome to. Now the kids can go back, but happy anniversary. <laughs> So welcome again. We are going, are continuing uh, our, our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, again, we've titled this the sermon series in Christ. And, and this morning, as we dive into Ephesians chapter three, we're going to be focusing on God's plan and purpose for our lives. And, and that's interesting because for me, I felt like that was most of my early twenties. Right? I, I think I grew up in the church, and, and one of the questions we ask you, whether you were a young teenager, a middle schooler, uh, a high schooler, a college. College, and it was like, what's God's plan for your life? But it seems to be something we're all chasing after. What is God's will? Um, I think early on, I, I don't know if I knew how to answer what was God's will for my life. And I think God, knowing who I am, was going to tell, tell me everything that wasn't God's will for my life first. You know, that's how our relationship works. But I think even before I knew what I thought God wanted me to be doing, I had an idea. And so my, my freshman year Messiah, I actually took a, a first-year seminar. I think they changed the name. I don't know what the fancy people call it now. But we used to call them first-year seminars. And, and mine was called Communicating the Faith, which is fascinating because my major was marketing. You know, like I wanted to make commercials. That's what I thought. Well, I don't know if that's what God wanted to do in my life, but that's what I wanted to do in my life, right? And, and, and so, I, so I took this class, and I remember my big project. I wrote this paper. And at the end of the paper, I essentially said, that, like, I'm only going to work for a company I believe in is now to tell people about Jesus. That was my great, big 17-year-old thesis, right? Um, but, but the thing about that, though, is that I think deep down inside I knew, but I was still chasing this plan and purpose for my life. So that led me with a marketing degree to work at a marketing firm, and that was going really well until I realized two things. One, I didn't like who I was becoming, which is kind of a big deal. Um, but then the second one was I had a boss and a supervisor who came to me and was like, this is the next 10 years of your life. And as someone who just turned 21, that was scary. And I was just like, I don't think this next 10 years of my life, I quit. Again, people, I don't advise anything that's done here, right? Like, you're going to see a pattern of this behavior. I don't advise you. I'm just telling you God's plan and purpose for my life, right? So that was the first one. So the next thing I tried is I actually moved back to Harrisburg, um, and I worked retail. I was a retail manager. I joked that this was my first youth pastor job, you know? And the reason I say that is because, like, people who work for me, I know we're in Lancaster, and, like, that's kind of like the Bible Belt of Central Pennsylvania, so it's not that incredible, but to me it was incredible. Um, I had high schoolers and college kids who, it took me a while to tell how old I was, so I was only a couple years older than them, right? So it was my first youth pastor job, and I'm very, very... Um, 
Kyle's a weird way to say it, but I am proud of what God did through that little time together because kids from that store have gone on to be pastors and missionaries and start nonprofits and, and do some incredible things, start companies, right? So that was my first youth pastor thing, and that was going great until I had another boss. You know what's coming. I laid out the next 10 years of my life and said, This is what you should be doing. I was like, I don't know what I should be doing, but this is not what I should be doing. So guess what I did? I quit again, right? Thank you. So then I moved back to Philadelphia and I decided to try my hand at social work. You know, I was just like, you know what? I grew up in the Philly school district. This is a cool job, you know, it's a chance to, first of all, I got summers off, so that was key. But like, it was a cool job that can help out the youth, right? Help out the youth. And, and that was going great. Did that for two to three years. Everything was going swimmingly until I had a boss, you know what's coming. Made out the next 10 years of my life, I was just like, this is what you should be doing. I was like, you know what? I quit again. Do that, right? Again, don't follow me. Follow Jesus. But at the end of this one, right, I decided to do a reset. And so for me, part of that reset was, was kind of reassessing my entire life. And, and, and what I came up with is I don't know what God wants me to be doing. I don't know his plan. I don't know his purpose. But I know Philadelphia wasn't part of it at that stage. So I decided to move to Harrisburg. When I moved to Harrisburg, you know, I, I actually saved up some money. My, my mom was very proud of me. I saved up some money. Um, and, and so I moved in with some friends. And, and when I moved in with some friends, I started working at Bethesda Mission Youth Center. And I loved it. I loved meeting kids who were like me not so long ago. I loved walking with them, navigating with them. And I loved, like, seeing God come alive in them. But what was interesting was when this church called 8th had a youth pastor and it opened up, and I knew it was opening up because the youth pastor this time was actually a friend of me, uh, a Messiah. And we knew each other well because the Messiah, we said there was 20 black people on campus, so we had to know each other back then, right? But when he was leaving to go off to seminary, I had another friend who was just like, are you going to apply for the eighth grade job? And I was just like, what do you mean? I'm not a youth pastor. And I love my friend Al because he was just like, well, that's interesting. What are you doing at Bethesda? And I was like, well... Teaching kids about Jesus and Bible study and discipleship. We do a little events here and there. And he's like, hey, um, you're a youth pastor. And I was like, oh my God. Right? It's like a movie scene. It's like it's like tumbling down upon me. I was like, oh, I guess I'm a youth pastor. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. But the second of, of even applying for this job was realizing. And I, I, I used some similar quotes. If you've been around here, you've heard this before, right? But I love when St. Augustine describes the church as a home and a hospital. Because what I realized in that process is that that transfer VIC had become a home and a hospital for me. It was a home because these were Jesus people. And not just the people who noticed the red words of Jesus in, in the Bible, but people who were actually trying to do it. It was people who were committed to being a body, to being a family. It was people who were committed to being more than equal. So it was the first time I interacted with a church that was not only intensely multicultural, but looked at you and said, you're black, you're white, you're Indian, you're Latino, you're rich, you're poor, you're young, you're old, but we are one family. And I love that. But it was also a hospital because I needed some healing. I've been hurt by church. I've been hurt by Christians. And I had gotten to a point where me and God were good, but I wanted nothing to do with God's people. I think there's a lot of us who go through this, not just in our 20s, but in life, right? And, and sometimes it flips. Sometimes maybe God's people is okay, but you want nothing to do with God. But my version of it was, I knew God was good. I just didn't like his thing. I think God had to kind of work on me, right? And actually process me through that. 
It will not only get me through that, but get me to a place of emotional and spiritual healing. And then I realized something. So the first part was, I was called to this church. To be a part of this church was a calling. And that's weird because a lot of us think we choose stuff in life, right? We think we choose what we're going to do when we grow up, right? But for me, the first part of it was realizing I was called to this calling. And then when I became new pastor, I realized that my calling is to serve in this church. I think those are two things. I think the reason that's important to know what you're called to and what your calling is is kind of what Paul is going to explore and share about in Ephesians chapter 3. When he's writing now to say, this is God's plan and purpose in Christ, Paul's going to share first about, about being called. He sees himself as someone who's called by God to be God's servant. He sees himself as someone who's called by God to be the mystery sharer. Right? These things that are hidden, he is called to reveal them and to reveal them to the Gentiles. And, and so he's called to be the servant, but his calling is to spread the good news, the story of Jesus, the God who left heaven to come to earth, who lived to show us how to love, who died so that we could be free. Who's making heaven perfect for us? Who sends the Holy Spirit? And who will again come back again? All right, so that we, the Ethna, the others, the strangers, the immigrants, the outsiders, we who were not ethnically Jewish and God's first chosen people, He writes so that we know the mystery. That is the good news that Christ has come for us too. If you're tracking along with us in Ephesians, Paul talks a lot about power. Because this was a people and a culture obsessed with power. For us, we're obsessed with power materially, right? Or politically, or selfishly. But then they were obsessed with power spiritually, right? These Ephesians are the type of people who would stub their toe. We don't do this. We're very, we're very advanced, right? They would stub their toe and be like, I think their spirit wants to get me. Right? I think the devil made me do it. We never say stuff like that. Only these seasons say stuff like that. But like, there were people who were obsessed with the spiritual powers of the world. And so Paul writes to them and says, listen, if you want to know true power, you need to know Jesus. If you want to see true power, you need to know the Spirit. If you want to know how God is working, you need to know God is your Father. And he starts off writing about how the power of God has been shown in the gospel, the story of Jesus. The power of God has united not only us and God, but heaven and earth. The power of God has made this new humanity that Jews and Gentiles can come together as one body, one flesh, one family of God together. But now he's going to say, the power is God bringing you together. But I want you to know that that's not just God being powerful. That's God's plan and design. That's God's purpose. And that the Jews and the Gentiles would come together to grow the covenant promised family of God. That the Jews and the Gentiles would, would come together and that what we thought Israel were to inherit, you all now get. What we thought Israel was to be, you now all are. And what we thought Israel was to get coming to them in promise, you now get it too. What I love about Ephesians 3 is that Paul is going to show us that when we think of God's plan and God's purpose for our lives, you got to start with what God wants to do with you. But never forget, it's not about you, it's about 
that's what Ephesians 3 is about. What is God's plan and purpose for us? Amen? If you have your Bible, turn on me to Ephesians chapter 3. I'll be reading the first 13 verses. Starting at verse 1, we'll have it up front, so you can follow there as well, um, or you can follow on your phone or wherever you do follow. Uh, Ephesians 3, starting at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you, Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God for the apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God to be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm, according to His eternal purpose, that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him, through faith, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged, because of my sufferings to you, which are your glory. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. You are indeed the God of family. You're God who makes of your family. You're God who sends your son. You're God who, who sacrifices your son so that we can be adopted as daughters and sons of you. Lord Jesus, our King, we thank you for not only coming to heaven, from heaven to earth, and, and living and dying, but we thank you this morning that you took us, that you are our champion. That you defeating sin and death and darkness and destruction made it possible that we can be set free, that we can be family, that we can be one with God but also one with each other. Holy Spirit, we thank you that it's you who convict us of sin, that it's you who knit us together as one, that it's you who bring us together. Lord, we have a world that tells us all the ways we are different. We have minds and realities and experiences that show us all the ways we are different. But we thank you this morning that our diversity is not a weight that holds us down, but it's a window to what your kingdom looks like. It's a picture of this beautiful scene you've been painting for generations and centuries through your people throughout time. But it's also your plan. Your design, your purpose, your desire, to lead together as one, to be one with you, to be with us now, as we think on what it means to be part of your plan and purpose for our world. In your name we pray. Amen. The Old Testament. And again, it's important when we say scripture taught that the non-Jews were, were, were able to join the people of God. It's important that we realize that, that when we say scripture taught this, this is an Old Testament principle. 
right? The people who are writing the New Testament, what they consider subversive the Old Testament. When we go to the Old Testament, we pointed this out before, right? We go to the Old Testament, we'll find people like Ruth, who's from Moab, who's an ancient enemy of Israel, who becomes a line of not only David, but Jesus the Messiah himself. We'll find people like Rahab. Again, another, I don't know what's before ancient, but whatever's before ancient, you know, enemy, was Jericho. Before they got to the promised land, the wall fell down. Rahab was from Jericho. But yet, through faith, he also joins the family of God. And again, he too gets included in the line of Jesus. So, Scripture in the Old Testament is founded on this principle that God's people is not just genetic. The God people, we think of Israelites in the Old Testament, the God people is not just this one side that stayed quote unquote pure. The God people was based on faith, and that people from everywhere can come and join in if they have faith. Jesus himself, the Jew of all Jews, the Jewish Messiah, wasn't pure by the Israelites because no one was. God's people was based on faith. And when you go through the Old Testament, you'll see kings themselves welcoming non Jews into the fellowship. You'll see David welcoming Uriah the Hittite. Now, that wouldn't end as well as you wanted to, so we're going to tell story this morning, right? We'll also know about Zedekiah, who welcomed him, Ebed Melech, which means son of the king. Ebed Melech was from Kush, which is ancient Sudan, and we're talking about before the Arab invasion. So, we're talking about in the people of Israel, African man, Ebed Melech, who's probably darker than me, who would consider himself part of God's people. Again, it's not about what your, your family or who your father was. It's about who your heavenly father was. And if you came in by faith, it didn't matter if you looked different. God's point was that I'm painting this picture that all the world belongs to me. So you have Ethan Mellon and the thing that the, the wild thing about Jeremiah. It's that we consider him a major prophet, and they'll tell you he's a weeping prophet, and they'll tell you he might have wrote Lamentations, and he might have wrote Kings, and he wrote Jeremiah. But here's what I'm going to say this morning. I might talk more about Africans than just about any other person in the Bible writer. And this is before Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the kingdom in Acts 2. He's talking about these Africans who hear about the word of Jesus and they come and they join the people of God. You know the reason why Jeremiah likes Africans because they saved him. Right? He was actually pronounced to be killed and thrown into a well. And if he had married the African Kushite, Ethiopian, or some other word they use, brother, he comes in and he rescues him. Again, scripture teaches that non Jews can join, but kings would even welcome them into the fellowship. And when they were welcomed in, some of them were given full covenant rights. Now, the painful part of that is that for some of them, they do this circumcision. We're not going to talk about that. Let me figure that one on the Google, right? But one of the beautiful things that was that some of them came in, not just through circumcision, but through some, 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 uh, uh, I used to water on my paper, right? But the idea is that they would go through this purification rite. It's kind of similar to our baptism, right? Like, baptism itself doesn't save you, but it's a, it's a symbol that they tie belong to the family of God. Not just happens with this, but I belong to the universal, historic family and people of God. And they did that even in the Old Testament for these outsiders who they brought in. They would literally put them through the water ritual as a purifying rite to join the full family of God. And yet when Paul takes all of this into the background, and now he's going to say the same thing that was true before, that it is faith in God and God's grace to welcome people in is now even more true in Christ. That in Christ, 
non-Jews and join the people of God. In Christ, be king of all things and so welcome you into fellowship. In Christ, you can be full covenant members, full citizenship. You may not have to get circumcised physically, but you got to circumcise your heart and you can come into baptism because in Christ, all can enter by faith. And that's the argument he's making again in Ephesians chapter 3. And as we said earlier this morning, he's writing from prison. And I love that when he writes from prison, in two Paul fashion, right? He's like, listen, I am a prisoner, but of Jesus. I know the old church ladies I grew up with, right? It's just like, are you suffering? Yes, but I'm suffering for the Lord. He's like, what do you say to that? He's like, oh, you can't win that argument. And then it's over. He's like, ah, I almost have a name now. He's like, hi, this old church lady. He's like, I'm suffering for the cause of Jesus. He's like, well, that, um, have a good Sunday, man. You know? And Paul does the same thing here, right? He begins by defining his situation, not based on what he's going through, not based on what the world has done to him, not based on his suffering, but by simply identifying that everything I am, all that I do, all that I am, I still belong to Jesus. And that's who I work for. That's who I suffer for. So he identifies himself as my witness and my faith that I am a prisoner of Jesus. This is interesting because the, the ancients had the theology, which I know we're very, you know, we're advanced. We don't think like this anymore. So they used to think that he who suffered the most, right? And I think he who just many usually thought this and we're usually wrong. But they used to think that he who suffered the most must be loved the most. Like, we don't do that anymore. We don't have that theology, right? Like, we don't do that, right? But they used to think that he who suffered the most was loved by God the most. But Paul is trying to shift that narrative. And to say, listen, we live in a broken, fallen world. And in this broken, fallen world, we all might suffer. We all may go through hard things. Following God doesn't mean life is completely easy and everything comes easy. We might suffer. But remember that even in your suffering, God's with you. Even in your struggle, He's there with you. Even in your prison cell, He's calling you in. That you belong to Him there too. And we might suffer now, but let this be our rallying cry. Let this be our witness that our God is with us, that our God is good, and our God, our God is working through us. So Paul writes to the prison to say, yes, I'm suffering, but I'm a prisoner of God for you, the Gentiles. And then he calls himself a steward or an administrator of God's grace. I think this is one of the most beautiful names that Paul gives himself, right? We don't often get to name ourselves, like our parents name us, right? Or, or in my case, our best friends name us. Like, I was never Hank until I got to college. He's like, you are Hank. I was like, yes, I am. Didn't know that, right? So now everyone talks to Hank. I was like, yes, September 2000. That's when I knew you from, right? From that point on, right? Because everyone in my life before that point doesn't call me Hank at all, right? Well, except for the house in my life, so that's what I'm Someone said something about no idea what you said, so keep going. God bless you. God be with you. I love you. So what's fascinating is when he calls himself an administrator or a steward of God's grace, I love that. Because the idea of stewarding is not holding on, right? And it's not lording over. It's taking what God has given us and sharing it with one another. I love that. And so he says, God's grace isn't something that he's given me so I can fight to hold on to it. God's grace isn't something he's given me so I can point out how I'm better than you. God's grace is something he's blessed me to share with you. And what has God called me to share? That he wants to reveal to you 
his great plans all throughout history. And when God speaks about history in the Old Testament, it's not just the history of Israel, it's the history of the world. And it's not just the present time at all times, right? God is outside of time. When he's speaking in the present time, he means about all time. And it is all of humanity. And Paul says, me, I enter this story at this time to reveal to you what history says. The Greek word is mutarion, right? That's where we get our, our mysteries from. My best friend, Ed Reed, I thought this kid was witty. He's brilliant, right? Uh, back in the day, we had this thing called AOL Instant Messenger, right? And his name was Mystery 88, right? And I loved that his name was Ed Reed and he was Mr. Reed. It's beautiful. So that was my first understanding of mystery being something you uncovered. The more biblical one is mutarion. So what Paul is saying here is that for some of us throughout history, this has been hidden. For all of us throughout history, we haven't gotten all of it. But here's the thing. God revealed it to me and confided in me with his grace so I can share it with you. It's not been made known clearly to all the generations. We can say Rahab and Ruth had a place in the kingdom. We can say Uriah and Ebed-Melech had a place in the kingdom. We can name tons of others in the Old Testament, but we just didn't get it like we get it now. And what do we get? Paul says, God has revealed to me. But also the other apostles, like Peter, who preached on the day of Pentecost. But God has revealed it to the prophets of old, right? I talked about Jeremiah, but also to Isaiah and Michael, who both talked about the mountain of the Lord, where the peoples of the earth would gather under the name of God. And what is the revelation? That we are now a testimony of outsiders as Gentiles, as non-Israelites, people of faith, the people who only come by the name of Jesus. We have the heir to everything Jesus the ancients believed in the promised land. And Paul writes to a people who don't just need a promised land, a physical promised land. He writes to a people who need to know that God is working for the ultimate promised land to you. That you now have access not to a, a piece of land in the Middle East, but to all the earth. All the earth will be redeemed and belong to the people of God. You are heirs to everything that God has, right? You have it all. And then he goes to the most Jewish of promises. He goes to Abram. Who I don't even think Abram was a Jew, but that's another conversation. Abram, who becomes the father of the Jews and the holder of this Jewish covenant promise, Paul says, you are now covenant members of that too. That when God was promising Abraham, it wasn't just for Israel, it was for the world. It wasn't just for the world, it was for you. And what was that promise? That promise was that you can now belong as full citizens. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of meeting an immigrant who's running from something or, or, or leave or forced to leave what was their land and they established themselves in this new land and they get a passport. I don't know if you've experienced that joy, but if you haven't, I pray that you meet someone who understands citizenship, something that we sometimes take for granted and they understand what it means to now belong, what it means to now have rights, what it means to be seen. And that's what Paul is saying here. For all of history, you Gentiles haven't been seen. We've just seen little blips of you on the radar. And even though God had a plan, we didn't see the plan. But what is the plan but now that you belong, that you are seen, that you get full rights. And that culture 
that believed in adoption. And when you were adopted into the family, it wasn't like these are my adopted children and these are my birth children. They all became your children. And they all had access to everything the Father has. So Paul speaks to that generation and that people and he says, listen, if you don't get the citizenship thing, think about adoption because God has adopted all of you into becoming sons and daughters. But lastly, he gave you one family. His family. And after he establishes all of this, right, the power of God is just seen through us. But the plan and purpose of God is us. And I remember when I said before that, that I struggle with this idea that me and God were cool, but me and the church wasn't. This passage kind of takes my bubble a little bit because this passage says to me that says that God's plan is the people. That God's plan is the church. So if you want to divest from the church, you're essentially divesting from God's plan. I want you to hear that this morning. When you say me and God are good, but I don't need the church, you're literally stepping out of God's plan. Because that's God's plan and purpose is the people. And if you belong to God, you don't get to divorce from His people. Just like I don't get to divorce from my knees or my back or my brain. Well, sometimes my brain. You get what I mean. You don't get to divorce from God's people. And so when Paul lays this all down, then he starts reflecting on his own calling. And he says, listen, I serve by God's grace through God's power. I think that's a beautiful line for all of us to hold on to. Are we serving by God's grace through God's power in our homes? in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our communities, in our cities, in our country, in our world. Are we serving by God's grace through God's power? And speaking of power, Paul says, I have been chosen by God and made special by God, not because of me, but because of God. And you have to remember that Paul was a Jew. Paul was a rabbi. And the kind of rabbi Paul was was that he was a Pharisee. And he's essentially saying, the people I'm from isn't what makes me special. The profession I have isn't what makes me special. The power and privilege that my society gives me isn't what makes me special. The only thing that makes me special is that God has chosen me like he's chosen you. Paul is willing to give up the power of this world for the power of Christ. And that's a challenge to us, right? That's a challenge. You know, if I personalize it, it's a challenge. What does it mean to let go of the power you have as a man in this culture? As a, as a pastor in this culture? Right? Or as a black man in this culture? But for all of us, that's what Paul is saying. This world gives us all power. Are we willing to work for that power and use that power? Are we willing to let it go? And say, it is God who's chosen me like he's chosen us. And I'm going to serve, not by the world's power, but by God's grace. Because that's the true power. When we're serving and loving by God's grace, we bring the world together. And Paul says, listen, this is the message that we are to preach. Not the power of the world, not the riches of the world, but the riches of Christ. And Paul's message essentially comes down to that God gave plan and design purpose and desire is for us to be his family. The things that God reveals his wisdom, his power. Again, we're talking to a people who are upset about the 
ancient powers in the spiritual world. People who believe not in guardian angels like, like some of us in this day and age believe them, but they believe in, in guardian territory angels, right? Like they believe in the God of Pennsylvania and the God of New Jersey, and they would even break it down to the God of Harrisburg and the God of Steelman. And whenever I crossed that border, I realized there are two gods there. That's another conversation, right? They believe in territorial gods, right? And Paul is saying, listen, that spirit world, you being God's family, you loving one another, you belonging to one another, you actually being family together, that puts them in their place. Because their job is going to be to separate you. Their job is going to be to let you speak of yourself as retired. Their job is going to see you burning and society burning as a whole, that you committing to one another sets the spirit to be it sets them in their place. That God is so powerful that down here that the people of God can reflect not only the kingdom of God, but we can reflect God himself. And so Paul is writing to say, listen, and it's not just about the angels and the demons, it's about you, God's people, because if you are the church, if you are the business, if you are the witness in power, we can see God's ultimate promise. That is the plan and the purpose with the ultimate promise. And here's the joy of it all. And you now get to share in God's I love that. And this is not just saying we all belong in that church. It's not just saying we're all part of each other in that church. But it's saying that every single one of us who belong and who are part of each other has work to do. And we can humbly and excitedly take up that mental. I was like, this is God's plan and purpose. What is the work that God asked me to do for the kingdom? And in the end, by saying, if we know that we belong, if we know that we have seen, if we know that God has made us full citizens, full daughters and sons, full members of his body, this is how we can seek God freedom and confidence. I don't think I think, I'm not going to put this on you, I don't think I think about the freedom and confidence I can come to God with enough. These were people who needed a priest. They needed to rely on a priest to go to God, to hear from God. And then for hundreds of years, these priests decided to put a barrier upon barrier upon barrier upon barrier to separate the people from God. Initially, it was the priest, you go to priest about God. Then it became, let's separate men and women. Let's separate Jew and Gentile. Let's separate rich and poor. Let's separate holy from unholy, right? It gets a barrier after barrier after barrier. And Paul is now saying, no, God's plan and purpose is for all of us. God's power is seen in all of us. And when we come together as one, as Christ's body, you don't need the priest. You don't need the pastors. You can rip down that wall. At least I can let Jesus rip down the wall. You just walk through it, right? You just walk through it. Don't break down walls, right? We're still holding up. Good. You can walk through the work that Christ has done. And you can now go to God in freedom and confidence. So when you go to pray to God, right, you're not just talking to the God of the universe. You have access to the God of the universe. You're not just talking to a God who loves you. You're talking to a God who's worked in you, before you, and after you. You're not just talking to God who wants to hear, but you're talking to God who hears, but who holds you. God who creates you, the God 
to a God who loves you and has always designed and planned for you. Has always chosen you for disappointed times, for disappointed relationships, for disappointed friends. And then he says also, that if you have to be successful, let it be for the truth. And this is when Paul saying you need to suffer to be more holy. This is when Paul saying that suffering is okay and good. This is Paul saying that when we suffer, God is still with us. That our suffering and our darkness and our failures does not define God's design and plan and purpose. That in everything that we go through, if we give it to God, He can redeem. That everywhere that we are, if we stop walking in the wrong direction and turn and come back to God, He'll not only meet us where we're at, He'll help take us to where He desires us to be. Let our suffering be not just something we endure, but can our suffering be a witness to point others to God to say, You can make it too? To say that God can carry you too? To say that you can come out on the other side? Because sometimes it's not the words that we speak, it's the days that we endure. Sometimes it's not the hug that we get, it's the place that we hold. Sometimes it's not about us being seen, it's about our sister or our brother feeling alone and seen too. And Paul is saying, I'm suffering. That even in this suffering, I know God's with me. Even in this suffering, I know God's working through me. Even in this suffering, I know God's pointing you back to me. And I think that's some of the lessons we can get about what it means to be with this plan and purpose in Christ. Paul is looking at his situation and not letting it define him. He's still letting his belonging to Christ be defined him. I think that's hard for us because life is hard. Because the things we suffer are hard. Because we live in a world where it's easy to identify with so many different things. And Paul says, is your primary identity still in Christ? Is Jesus still your primary identity? Because if he is, you might be in prison. Be there with God holding you and leading you out. You might be in prison. But if you're going to be tied down, let it be to the gospel. And the way we do that is we serve where we're at. Whether it's in the prison cell where his meals weren't guaranteed, or in house arrest where he was literally at, at, at the mercy of other Christians, or even in jail, at the mercy of other Christians, where they even eat that day. Paul says, I'm going to serve where I'm at. And I think that's the work of the people of God, right? Like, we can dream and hope for the future. Let God worry about the future. Focus on what God called you to now. Do that and do it well. Serve God now. Because here's the thing, right? There's never going to be a perfect time to start serving God. Right? You know, well, once I get to school, I can serve God then. You know, once I get, get this promotion, I can serve God then. Right? Once the kids are out the house, I can serve God then. Right? Once I get uh, a new house, I can serve God then. You will always be an excuse to not be faithful right now. So the work for all of us is how can we serve right now? And again, remember what Jesus said before you went to heaven, right? The work is to just share what God has shared with you. I'm so glad that God doesn't require all of us to have a PhD in theology. 
that doesn't require all of us to know ancient Hebrew and Greek and context and culture. It's helpful. But I'm glad that God just requires us uh, to share our story, to share our journey, to share what He's done. But here's the thing. I've been with this PhDs in Greek and Hebrew, and it's about riveting to about two of us. But I've also heard the stories of how God's worked and moved and healed and held and has done more for the kingdom than knowing this character. That's done more for the kingdom, knowing the agape love of God, the blessed love of God that you felt and experienced. God's done more than me explaining to you what that is. That's all God's calling you to do. Be faithful where you are. Share the story of what I've done in you and through you. Because here's the thing. If you're faithful where you are, if you're living to share God's story, at some point, you get to see God do some incredible things. And that's the joy of God. Right? That's the joy. We may only live in the present. Some of us may only be able to learn from the past, right? And dream about the future. But in this present, if you're willing to be faithful and you're willing to tell your story, let God be the one who teaches it all to You don't have to know exactly your plan and purpose because most of us are your parents. If I was 17 years old and you told me I'd live in Harrisburg my whole life, we would have a conversation. And I'm not sure if I was a full pacifist back then, so it would be an interesting conversation. You tell me I have to be a pastor of any church. See, that's just easy, right? Like, I'm still at that point where I can only pastor this church, right? Like, no other church I'm ever going to go to. Like, when I'm done here and you guys stick with me, I'm good. I'm good, right? But if you told me I'd be a pastor of any church, I'd be like, no, you're, you're, I mean, I was really doing the work, and my friend told me I'm like, you're not a pastor. I'm not a pastor. We are so in love with the idea of knowing where we're going knowing what we're doing, having power and control. But I think Paul's trying to remind us to let God have the power and let you have the commission. Let God know the future, let you be faithful in the present. Let go of your past, because God is let go of that too. We are the body of Christ. Because God's chosen us, because God's called us, because God given us all this calling to be his multi-ethnic family of faith, where people belong, where people are seen, where people are held, where people are sent out, and where heaven comes down. Amen? I can invite up the worship team. We're going to close by singing, I give myself away. Um, as they come up, I'd like to also invite any of the, the pastors in the building or in the room up front. Um, we'd love to pray for you. Um, maybe it's something you want to respond to in the service or in the sermon. Um, maybe it's just something you have going on in life. Maybe it's a challenge you feel God calling to. How do I be present? How do I be faithful? How do I be faithful with what God's called and given me? But whatever you got going on, we'd love to pray for you. As we sing this song, right? We're going to sing, I give myself away. I want to challenge you to do some mental gymnastics, right? I want you to think about what does it mean that, that we give ourselves away? What does it mean that not just me taking the step, but we're taking the step together? Because I think in the New Testament, more times when it talks about the church and you, it's a you plural. God's plan is for all of us. Where do you fit in? How can you give yourself away to Him to join in the work He's already doing? Let's stand and sing together.
where Paul is going to talk about God being the, the, the path of familiar, right? The father of all families. In that culture, the, the father represented everything. And whatever the father said was law, whoever the father invited him was invited fully into the family. So he's going to touch on that. He's going to say, God, every family comes from you, but thank you for making us your family. Because the Holy Spirit strengthen us with your power. Use our Christ dwell in our hearts forever. God help us, and I love this, this is how he ended, before his formal benediction. God help us to grasp and hold on to your love. Ephesians 3, 14, 21 says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth divides his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through things. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he sends them out with this. Now to him, God, who is able... We are measuring more than all we can ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.